Some people believe that the title Son of God means that Jesus is ontologically different than the Father. Today we're going to look at this claim closely and see what exactly does the Bible have to say about Jesus being the Son of God. Welcome back to the show, everybody. This is the Dance of Life podcast, and my name is Tudor Alexander. Thanks so much for being with me today. If you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you do so, and do so through my website or my Substack. You never know when the algorithm giants will attack, so I just like to have multiple options to stay in touch. But today we are continuing our series on the Trinity with a very important topic, which is looking at the title, The Son of God. Now, if you are just joining, a quick review with the previous episodes, we looked at basically what did Jesus say about himself as God? What did others believe and testify of Jesus? Very consistent that everybody who wrote about Jesus in the New Testament believed that he was God. When Jesus himself spoke, he claimed preexistence, he claimed divinity, he claimed to be God, he appropriated the name of Yahweh to himself, he did only things that Yahweh does. In Revelation, he says, I'm the first and the last, and that's only Yahweh speaking in the Old Testament. So we have very consistent evidence throughout the scriptures, both through what Jesus said and what others said about him, that the New Testament teaches that Jesus is God. We also looked at other things regarding the Trinity and things like the Trinity and salvation, uh, looking at the Holy Spirit as a person and as God, looking at some general objections. So go check out some of those previous episodes. They're great studies for you. If you're interested in this topic, if you're looking to learn more about it, to defend it for yourself, maybe you don't really know much about it. Maybe you don't believe it. Maybe you're Muslim. Maybe you are Mormon. Maybe you're Unitarian. But you're wondering if your beliefs are true or not. And so ultimately, my goal is to give you ample evidence that the Bible does teach a trinity. The trinity is not a pagan idea. It's not a Catholic invention. It's not all these different things that people say it is. It's ultimately what the Bible forces you into. Because as you'll see time and again through all these episodes, that it is really the only explanation. So the conclusion so far is that Jesus is God, and that's unquestionable. It's unquestionable that the people who wrote about him believed he was God. It's unquestionable that he claimed to be God in many, many different ways. But if this is the case, if Jesus is God which is an ontological reality, meaning that's the nature of his being, he's God, then what do we do with the title, the Son of God? This is the question for today. Now, some people believe that it's a different ontology. So that when when you say that Jesus is the Son of God, well, that just means he's God's Son. And, And somehow he's different than the Father ontologically. And this is the thing that we really want to drive at. For example, Mormons... Mormons use the same language and titles that traditional Christianity uses, like Son of God. But what they mean by those words is very, very different. Mormons reject the Trinity, reject the divinity and preexistence of Christ as the God of the Old Testament. So there's a lot of very fundamentally different belief systems and beliefs in the Mormon religion, even though they use the same words. And so we have to be very specific and understand what is the Bible teaching when it says the Son of God. Very, very important topic. But again, given the previous context that we have where 
Jesus is God, very clearly so, but now you have a title, the Son of God. He's also the Son. So how do you deal with that? Well, you deal with it with the Trinity in the sense that you have God as a being, there's one being, but he exists in three persons, the Father, who is God, the Spirit, who is God, and of course, the Son, who is also God, and the Son revealed himself through the person of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is God, and he's also the second person of the Trinity. That's how you deal with it. And today we're going to look at this claim that the Son of God means that Jesus is somehow different than the Father, or less divine, or maybe he's in his own category of divinity, but he's not God. He's not all God Almighty. So there's some difference there because the title of the Son of God. We'll see if this holds any water, which if you can tell from my tone and my general direction, the answer is no, it doesn't hold any water. But let's just jump right to it. We have some good things to look at today, but I want the first thing I want to draw your attention to is this, that titles mean different things than what we initially read them as. Because again, titles were used in a certain way 2,000 years ago or more. For example, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, the preeminence of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For in him were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and in him. And he is before all, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn, there's that name again, or that title, from the dead, that in all things he may hold primacy. So this idea of the firstborn, if you're just reading that without context, what your your first impression is, in fact, I mean, you get context pretty quickly here, right in verse 16, but if you, let's just say you read the first Verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And you form an entire theology around that, that Jesus was created at some point because he's the firstborn. You're, you're not continue. You're not taking into context around the verses, around the scripture itself, around the book of Colossians, where like other letters too, where Paul writes and uses this term. And what is the meaning of firstborn here? Well, the meaning is preeminent. The meaning is that he's above everything. He can't be created because in verse 16, it tells you right away. Paul makes sure to clarify this, this idea of firstborn, which is, for in him were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So he himself cannot be created if everything was created by him. Firstborn means preeminent. And you're going you're gonna to see this theme, that's why I put it first, which is this theme of preeminence, this theme of, yes, there are sons of God, but Jesus is the Son of God. All these things are pointing to Christ. The very reason that we have firstborn, and in the Old Testament, the firstborn always received the, you know, the, the land rights, and, you know, the firstborn was like, that's the one, Right. That was the one that would take the family name forward. He'd be the new patriarch. He'd take it the you know authority over all things. And so that was a physical, historical reality. But the reason that existed is that when you see the word firstborn, you, it's fulfilled in Christ. It's not that Christ is born or you know created. Of course, he was incarnated as Jesus Christ, but 
The point is that Jesus Christ was never created. He was preexistent. Okay, he's not born in the sense like firstborn, like you have a firstborn child. He's firstborn in the sense that he is preeminent. He that preeminent aspect where he's ahead of all things. This is the thing to take from today is that how you read these titles is very, very important. Now, speaking of typology and types and shadows, this is going to be a big theme in today's episode, but I want to look at the Son of God as a type and how that is fulfilled in Christ. A lot of all these things are really fulfilled in Christ, but the Son of God is a huge type throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. First thing to get about types is that types are a good definition of type that I heard. I believe this was from Michael Heiser, and I think he heard it from somebody else. But of course, he's long, he's passed away now, but he had a lot of great things to say about the Old Testament and hermeneutics and things like that. Now, of course, I don't agree with everything that Michael Heiser's talked about, but he was a good scholar overall. And one of the things he said was this, is that typology is like nonverbal prophecy. So types and shadows in the Old Testament, like Aaron the high priest, they are prophecy, they're nonverbal prophecy that points to Christ. Remember, Jesus said that the the scriptures testify of him, meaning everything in scripture is designed to point to Christ one way or another. Right, of course, if you study this topic, you know exactly what I'm talking about, how everything points to Christ. So with that in mind, types are there to, to give us some way of comparing, compare and contrast, because types work by lesser to the greater, usually, right? So you have basically something that is lesser, like a firstborn child that receives the inheritance. That's a physical reality. But that's a shadow of the greater reality fulfilled in Christ as the firstborn beyond all creation. He's preeminent in all things. He created all things. And he inherits creation. And we inherit it through him. So you see how all these things work. Ultimately, these things are very much compare and contrast. But they all point to uh, to point to Christ, because he said the scriptures testify of him, and that's in John 5, verse 39. So let's look at a couple of types with the Son of God. Now in Exodus, very early on, uh, chapter 4, verse 22, it says, And thou shalt say to him, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. I have said to thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. Thou wouldst not let him go. Behold, I would, I would kill thy son, thy firstborn. I'm actually reading from the Dewey Reams, my goodness. I put this Bible for some other study I want to do. This is a Catholic Jesuit Bible. By no means I intend to read from it. I just didn't realize it was first. I'm like, why am I reading in old English? Anyway, ESV. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. This is what we want to get to, is that Israel was called basically the son of God. And of course, Jews today will look at you know prophecies like in Daniel 7 with the... Uh, Son of Man, which we'll get to in the next episode, as somehow that represents Israel. It's not. It's not the Messiah. You know, they, they Judaize these things, and all the rabbinic commentaries have twisted the Word of God to suit their agenda because they don't want to admit that Christ fulfilled these things. But that's another topic for another time. Israel was called the Son of God, right in Exodus. But if we look at the New Testament, Galatians six sixteen. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. The church 
which is the body of believers, not an institution, not a denomination, which, you know, of course, this changed in the last 2,000 years, but the original intention of the church is the body of believers. And that body of believers, the elect of God, is the Israel of God, it's the spiritual Israel. The church as a reality where everybody is placing their faith in Christ, the kingdom is in the hearts of men and women, that is the body of believers. That is the Israel of God. That is what fulfilled the physical type and shadow of the physical nation of Israel before the Messiah. Now, that's not a very popular opinion today. Not a, not a very popular opinion at all, but it's the truth. And of course, the truth is not usually popular, but this is the truth. None of the apostles, church fathers, Jesus himself, nobody believed that Israel still had a special purpose in God's plan apart from the gospel after the Messiah. So to insist on these things is not really to live in the New Testament. But the point is that Israel was the son of God, called a son of God or the firstborn in the Old Testament, even though Israel was a nation, right? Well, in the New Testament, spiritual Israel is the church. And we know, of course, from the verse we just read in Colossians 1.18, uh, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, the body, in other places, this is the body of Christ, which is also the church. So all these terms are synonymous. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So you have Israel as the church. Look at all these steps and and lesser to the greater to the greatest, almost. Israel is the physical type and shadow as the firstborn son of, of God. Meaning, like, there's, there's an attachment there. There's an investment. There's a special status, right, for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament when he speaks to Pharaoh. If you don't let Israel go, I'm going to take your firstborn son. That's what Israel means to me. But of course, that was a physical type and shadow for the future reality, which is the Israel of God, the elect. We are the adopted sons and daughters of God by being born again. Of course, you don't control being born again. It's God's elective sovereign choice that leads to that reality. But nonetheless, that's the Israel of God. Now, who is the firstborn or the preeminent in that Israel of God? It's Jesus. So do you see how all these things point to Christ ultimately? It's all about bringing you back to understanding who is the preeminent among all things, which is Jesus. In Job 1, again, Old Testament, this is when uh, Satan is testing Job. 1 verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, of course, these sons of God are angels, they're heavenly beings, the sons of God. And these there's other places where this title is used for angels or angelic beings. Now, of course, Jesus is the ultimate spiritual being who is the son of God, which we'll get to in a little bit later, but he's the only one where the title the son of God is used for. There are sons of God we are sons of God, too, when we get adopted into the church, into the body of Christ. But the Son of God is the one that's preeminent above all things, so that you understand, okay, here's one reality, but what's this one like? Remember that God is infinite. He is without, you know, you can't put God in a box. And so the only way that you can understand this infinite reality his infinite wisdom, his infinite splendor, his infinite power, 
is to have these limited examples that are themselves very grandiose and very powerful, like the sons of God, you know, these angels, these angelic beings, right? Very powerful. And yet they're just types and shadows of the son of God, which is not someone you can put in a box. This is how we understand the undefinable, which is God. So it's very, very profound to study these things, these typologies. But one more is in John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So humans are children of God, sons of God. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He's the greatest human that ever lived, right? Man is created in God's image. We know that from Genesis. But in Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, a claim to pre-existence, which is that you cannot be created and also uphold the universe by the word of his power. That's only God alone that does that. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to the angels, the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, there's a lot going on in this and talks about propitiation. We'll talk about this with the Son of Man as well, that Jesus has a very complex identity. Of course he does. He's God. Especially the reality of the incarnation. Very complex. But nonetheless, we understand it through these different types. The sons of God... You have the Son of God. We are children of God. Jesus is the Son of God, the firstborn of all creation, the preeminent one, both in life and in death. Exodus, you have the nation of Israel as the firstborn son. The church becomes basically the Israel of God. And of course, Christ is, the church is the body of Christ. We are in the body of Christ. We are in the Son of God. And of course, Christ is the head of the church. So again, all these realities point to him constantly as the preeminent one. And like I said, typology is nonverbal prophecy. There is so much nonverbal prophecy in the Bible through types and shadows. And it's designed to give us a way to compare something that is essentially uncomparable. How can you possibly understand God or compare God to anything? My ways are not your ways. How much higher are God's ways than our ways? Like the heavens are high from the earth. That's a, that's a pretty high distance, very high. And that's the point is that you see that and you're like, wow, you know, like how can I even begin to understand God? Well, in his mercy, he gives us these types and shadows, which are the lesser to the greater. This is a constant theme throughout the Bible, even the parables as well. So they are designed for us to get to know God, to get to know his character. And everything was made for Jesus because all things point to him. So learning to see these things as pointing to Christ, not as somehow limiting him in any way, but rather elevating Christ's position is the true way to look at these things. When you look at firstborn, like we're talking real, real happenings, like the firstborn of a family, sons, the sons of God as angels. All these things were types to make you understand Jesus's identity as God, but also as the son of God, as the second person of the Trinity. 
and to understand the incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation, that God came in the flesh, man. People still stumble over this. Unitarians, Mormons, Jews, Muslims, millions and hundreds of millions of people stumble over this, the incarnation, because it's a mystery. And that's the point. You're not supposed to understand it. You're supposed to marvel at it. But Son of God for Jesus, the title for Son of God for Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of these types and shadows, all these different things. It doesn't mean for Jesus what it means for you and I if we're the firstborn in a family. That's not what it means. Firstborn, again, remember when we talked about the Trinity in the very first episode, and even throughout some of these other episodes, where I said, when we say that, okay, the Father is a person, the Holy Spirit's a person, and the Son is a person, inherently we are limited by language. Because when when you say person, automatically things that come with that for you and I are things that do not apply to God. When we say person, and we, we're talking about real people, automatically we, that person has a body, physical body. They're in one place, you know, can't be in two places at once, right? There's certain, they, they live and they die. There's, there's things that apply, that don't apply to God when you say person. There's things that apply like emotions, self-awareness, right? A name, having consciousness, you know, feelings, attitudes, speaking, all these things are applying personal qualities to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, absolutely. But not all qualities when we say person can be imported into understanding God. And this is the same thing when you're dealing with things like sons of God, firstborn, all these different titles. You you have to scrutinize what they mean in terms of the physical reality, because not every aspect of that can be imported to the spiritual reality. That's not the point. The point is that the physical one is the inferior one. But there are things that it's pointing to, like firstborn is preeminent. You take the preeminence and that's what you apply to Christ. That's the whole point of having firstborns in this reality, is that there's preeminence. And so, oh, that preeminence belongs to Christ. It's not that he's created. It's not that he was born. Of course, again, he was. He had an incarnation. He experienced a physical birth, but he wasn't ever created. So this is this is a very important distinction to make. Now, the next thing I want to look at is, again, that Jesus was referred to as the Son of God multiple times, not a Son of God. Very, very important. Mark 3, and we're just going to go through these. And there's, this is not all of them, but we're just going to go through a couple of good ones. Mark 3, verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Mark 15, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way, he breathed his last. He said, Truly this man was the Son of God. This is after the crucifixion. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 43. He trusts in God. Let... The, Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God, the son of God. So every time people refer to Jesus as son of God, it's the son of God. Very important. Matthew 27, verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. Parallel verse to to Mark 15, verse 39. 
In Luke, Luke verse uh, chapter 4, verse 34, Ha! What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, this is, <laughs> gosh, this is such an important verse because, again, we'll take a little break here. Jesus has a complex identity. We're going to talk more about this in the uh, the next episode where we talk about the Son of Man. The Son of Man is by far Jesus's favorite title. He uses it, I think, something like 70 or 80 times in the New Testament to refer to himself. So it's a very important title to study because we want to understand what does he mean by this title? And it's a very profound title. It, it has such a complex identity because part of it is humble servant, human, and part of it is Messiah, Savior, Deity, God, God qualities. Very, very interesting. Very interesting title. But again, understanding these things, they're not what we would refer to ourselves as when we say, you know, a child of God or firstborn. Now, in this particular verse, Luke 4, 4 verse 38 through 44, 4, verse 34, the demon, the possessed, it calls him the Holy One of God. Now, do you remember from previous verse, previous episodes where we looked at, in the Old Testament, Yahweh speaking, again, it's like, you, unless you have the understanding of a trinity, there's no way to make sense of these passages. Where Yahweh is speaking, and he says, thus says the Lord and his Holy One, the Redeemer. Well, wait a minute, there's two separate people talking about here. And then later in the verse, I forget the verse number right now, but we, we looked at it last time. I believe it was Isaiah. Could be wrong about that. But towards the end, Holy One and Yahweh are the same person. Thus is the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. So on one end of the verse, you have, thus is the Lord and his Holy One, two separate people, persons, obviously so. And then other times, it's like the Holy One and Yahweh and the Redeemer are the same person. So you have these realities that are overlapping. And again, the only way to make sense of it is through a trinity. Now, of course, in the New Testament, we have the revelation of what this actually is, which is the trinity. There's the Son, the Father, and the Spirit are all three persons, and they're all God. And in this particular verse, Jesus is called the Holy One of God. So now we have understanding that when we go back to those Old Testament verses, where there's a separation, it seems, where... Yahweh is speaking about himself and pointing to his Holy One, different person. Now we understand what this is actually talking about, revealing, which is the Trinity, a triune God. Very, very fascinating. And of course, that overlaps with the Son of God. The Son of God is the Holy One of Yahweh. He's the Son of Man. He's the second person of the Trinity. All these aspects of his identity, which are also fascinating. But moving on, Matthew 4, uh, chapter chapter 4, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So the devil even called him the Son of God. He wanted to know, are you the Son of God, the, the promised Messiah that's going to crush my head? And of course, the answer is yes. Back in Luke, chapter 4, verse 41, And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them, and would not allow them to speak because he they knew that he was the Christ. Again, you have this interwoven reality of 
first off, the demons are acknowledging Jesus as the son of God. They know who Jesus is, but Jesus rebuked them, muted them, because it wasn't his time yet for people to be acknowledging him as the Christ. So he muted them. So again, but do you see the importance here? The son of God not only is preeminent, not only is the creator, but he's also the Messiah. Christ, the anointed one, is the son of God. Equal identities. Very, very, very important. Mark 5, verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Tor- torment me. So the demons basically acknowledge Jesus as the son of God. The devil acknowledges him as the son of God. But they also acknowledge him as the holy one. And the son of the most high God. Son of the most high God. Very, very interesting to to just piece these different realities. Again, we're trying to describe something that is essentially indescribable, which is the living God, the second person of the living God in human form. Very, very profound. Last one is in John 19, verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he would, he has made himself the son of God. Now, again, think about, think about this clearly and why this is so important. Saying that you are a son of God, a son of God, meaning like a prophet, special messenger type, is not a capital crime. Okay, I mean, Jesus made himself equal with God. This is, we looked at this over and over again in the previous episodes, both in what he said and how that made the Jews respond and eventually crucify him, and in what others said. He made himself equal with God, and he made himself God, because he is God. So when when they're basically saying, look, crucify him, what's their reasoning? Because he made himself the son of God. Well, if he's a son of God as in a prophet, that's not a capital crime. The son of God has certain divine connotations that even the Jews knew at the time who rejected him what was going on. Jesus was crucified because of blasphemy. That's what they accused him of. Blasphemy is you're making yourself God. And they accused him of that over and over again. So that means that this title, the Son of God, the preeminent Son of God, meaning the one that comes from God, is not just a prophetic messenger, but something much, much greater. The prophets as the sons of God were types and shadows for the ultimate son of God, the second person of the Trinity, of the triune God, which is also God. But I want you to compare all of these that we just looked at with some generic usages of the term son of God. And that's, for example, like in Romans 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So we, as believers, who are born again and receive the Holy Spirit and are being guided by the Spirit of God, we are sons of God. We're adopted. Sons and daughters of God. Look at some other generic usages compared to, again, pointing to the preeminence of Christ. Romans 8 verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, the Son, 
might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, does that mean that, again, that Jesus is created so that he could be the firstborn son? That's how Mormons would read this verse. But that's not what this is talking about. We are being adopted into the family of God. Jesus called the apostles. He said, no, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Right? And we are brothers with Christ. That's a profound reality. Of course, he's preeminent. He's far beyond what will ever be. But we are also being conformed to his image. We are brothers with one another. And he is firstborn among all the brothers. This is the reality. That's a spiritual reality. It doesn't mean that he's created. It means he's preeminent. That's the word that's being used. And people who lived 2,000 years ago, who... Today, we don't... See, here's the problem. Here's another problem with this culturally. We don't have... Like, when you when you have a firstborn child, you don't have the familial patriarchal rights and, and systems that existed 2,000 years ago. People don't think the way they thought 2,000 years ago. We, I'm not, you know, saying patriarchal society is a bad thing. I'm just saying we aren't patriarchal anymore. We aren't, you know, where you have the firstborn and that person inherits everything. It's, it's not, it doesn't work that way anymore. So when people read this and they understand the firstborn, they have all this cultural context in their mind about what it means to be the firstborn. And of course, when you have scripture as a whole, where all the apostles and writers of the New Testament testify that Jesus is God, very clearly so, then the context as a whole gives true meaning to this term firstborn. Jesus is preeminent among many brothers. That's what this really means. Like I said, in John 15, verse 15, he calls the apostles friends. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Isn't that fascinating? That, like, I remember in the Old Testament, it, it says that when Yahweh, God, was talking to Moses, he would talk to Moses as a man talks with his friend. Can you imagine how profound that is, that God, the infinite creator of the universe, who's beyond all understanding, sees us as friends through Jesus Christ, sees us as brothers and sisters. And of course, again, he's preeminent beyond anything we can ever understand fully. But nonetheless, there is the reality that we're brothers and sisters with one another and friends with Christ, brothers with Christ. He's the firstborn. He's the one that we look up to. He's the one that's preeminent. He's the one that inherited all things that we could inherit through him. He's our federal representative. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. So there's this dynamic relationship between us as the sons of God, as sons of God, and Jesus as the, meaning the preeminent one, the son of God. That title is specifically just for Jesus. In some ways, it's different, right? Very significantly so. And in some ways, we are the same. So understanding that there's differences and similarities that simultaneously coexist is very important. Otherwise, you run into really bad theology, like the Mormons do, where they don't make a distinction. They, they read these things and they say, firstborn, well, there you go, he's created. 
or other people, maybe Unitarians, Binitarians. Well, Binitarians, actually, I believe there's, Binitarians believe there's some divinity in Christ, but they have a distinction between the divinity of Jesus and the divinity of the Father, which again, that's a whole other rabbit hole, but we'll get into that in, in probably one of the final episodes of the series. But the point is this, there's distinctions that need to be made. If you don't make distinction, if you don't have nuance in your theology, you're very likely to go off balance and create very wrong views, especially on these very important things that matter, which is the nature of Christ. Now in John 3.16, we're going to talk about only begotten, and this is another very important title. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is also another very important understanding, only, gave his only son. Now, in in the Greek, he gave his only begotten son. It's monogenes, only begotten. Very important to understand what it means that Jesus is the only begotten. Because, again, a lot of people believe that he's that, that means that he's created somehow. He's the only child. Of course, if you're Mormon, you have very, very crazy views about that with Heavenly Mother and Heavenly Father and procreation and, and just very backwards views. So I truly hope that people who believe these things will just realize where those beliefs come from and how they're not in line with the scriptures. Mormons will say that the scriptures got changed and we only knew the truth 1,800 years later with Joseph Smith. But Joseph Smith received his revelation from an angel, and the Bible warns you that if you receive any other gospel, even if an angel in brilliant light appears to you, that if it gives you a different gospel, you are cursed. And so be very careful with these things. But we see this idea of only begotten throughout the Old Testament, and we see it also in Hebrews talked about a lot. So let's go to Hebrews first. This is Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, very important to understand is that Isaac was not Abraham's only son. If you... Remember, Abraham and Sarah got impatient and they impregnated Haggai, the servant, and that led to Ishmael. So Ishmael was actually Abraham's first child. So Abraham had another son. Isaac was not Abraham's only son. So then why does it say that here? Is that a contradiction or does it just mean something else? Again, context is so important. Let's look at Genesis. This is Genesis uh, 22 verses 1 through 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Man, what a crazy test, right? Imagine being Abraham, you have full faith in God, and then God asks you to basically sacrifice your son. What what a test, right? Now, it's very important to understand another very 
intricate detail that is not mentioned. It's only mentioned once, but it's, it's so very important to this particular passage. And that is that Abraham was considered a prophet by God. This is in Genesis, earlier in Genesis 20, verse 7. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, so intercessor as well, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, and you and all who are yours. So this is basically when Abraham stopped, uh, they were sojourning, and they stopped at Abimelech, and Abimelech, Abraham was insecure because Sarah was attractive. And he, he said, listen, let's just say you're my sister because if you're my wife, they're just going to take you. So if you're my sister, you know, they're not maybe going to think anything. Abimelech takes Sarah and of course God intervenes and says, listen, Abraham's a prophet. He can intercede for you. You better let her go. But this is a very important statement from God because prophets throughout the Old Testament, there was a common theme if you if you've read about the prophets Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the prophets always had prophecies that they lived out. That was a thing that God did throughout scripture. Like where he has Ezekiel lay on his side for a certain amount of time for judgment on Israel, lay on the other side judgment on Judah. These types of physical judgments that were played out by prophets were physical prophecies that were going to happen in the future. Very, very important. So now, put it all together. If God considered Abraham a prophet, and go back to Mount Moriah, when God is asking Abraham to live out this sacrifice, of course, he stops him from doing it. It was just a test. But the point is God is revealing, he's prophesying through Abraham What's going to happen? Your only son whom you love, monogenes. Now the word monogenes, which is in Greek, which is in John 3.16, your only begotten son, in Hebrews and Genesis, this idea of the only son, the only begotten son, it means one of a kind. It's not the only conceived. It is one of a kind. Obviously, Isaac wasn't the only son. So that's not what the Bible's saying. It's one of a kind. Isaac was the one, the child of the promise. In that sense, he was the only son. He was the one of a kind son, the only begotten. And we're going to see a, a, an understanding for this only begotten idea in just a second. But only begotten means one of a kind. It doesn't mean only creating. It it it, it points out a very specific role. It doesn't point out that this is the only son that you have, like a physical reality. That's meaningless. In fact, it would be contradictory because Isaac wasn't the only son. So God is prophesying through Abraham that something would happen, which is the birth of the Messiah and the sacrifice of the Messiah. The only son, the the only begotten son of God, the one of a kind, the son of God, the preeminent son of God. Not a son of God, but the son of God. This is what it's all pointing to. So remember also that John believed or believed that Jesus was God. John 1, John, other places in John, very clearly so, that John believed that Jesus was God. 
the God of the Old Testament. John had revelation. What did Jesus say in Revelation? I am the first and the last. But that's only what Yahweh said in the Old Testament. So how do you make sense of that? Well, you make sense of it that there's a trinity, that God as one being is actually triune. That doesn't exist for us because we don't exist that way. But who's to say how God should exist given that he created all things? So we're going to get back to this idea of only begotten because it's a very important idea and it doesn't have to do with being created, but rather one of a kind, appointment. You're appointed to something. Very, very interesting. But we'll come back to this. I want to look at some other things, which is that the Son of God means something qualitatively different for Jesus than it does for anyone else in Scripture. A prophet can be a son of God. An angel can be a son of God. Some, a born-again believer in the New Testament is a son of God. That's a title that we have. But when we say the son of God in reference to Christ, it's qualitatively, ontologically different. Very, very different in, in a much higher and greater way. Jesus is the son of God. He's the picture that all of the sons of God are pointing and magnifying. Angels, believers, prophets, everybody who was called the son of God, all those realities are magnifying the true image, the true son of God. We're just shadows of the son of God, if that makes sense. We're pointing to him. And we know that because the Father and the Spirit uniquely identified Jesus as the Son of God, as a unique title. The Father never identified anybody else as, this is my Son, right? Now, in Exodus, when we read earlier, Exodus chapter 4, Yahweh said, Israel is my firstborn son, in the sense that preeminent. But who is, again, in the New Testament... Have to read in context and you have to remember prophecy, verbal and nonverbal prophecy. In this case, you have both. God is announcing something, but also painting a picture through the physical Israel. In Colossians, who is the head of the church? Who is what is the church even called? The church is called the body of Christ. The body of Christ, the body of the Son of God is the church. Of course, who's the head of the body? Christ. So all of that is fulfilled in Christ. So this idea that the Son of God, God never identified anybody else other than Jesus as the Son of God. In Matthew 3, verse 16 through 17, at the baptism, very famous couple of verses, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. So not only is Jesus the son, he's the beloved son. Remember when God spoke to Abraham? What did he say? Your only son, the one whom you love. That was the point. God was painting a picture of the future of what would happen but not only that, but he's with whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine? Like that is, that is a nut. There's three identifiers here. There's the son, beloved son, and whom I am well pleased. All these identify Christ uniquely. 
Christ is sinless and perfect, completely righteous. God is well pleased with him. Nobody has, nobody has that status with God. We are righteous because of Christ. When the Father looks at us, he looks and sees Christ because of faith. But Christ is perfect. He's the one, he's the original. He's the one that God is well pleased with. He's the Son, and he's the beloved Son. We are sons of God through adoption and through faith. But Jesus is the firstborn among his brothers. He's the beloved Son. Everything points to Christ. It's so fascinating. But again, in the transfiguration, we have the same thing where Jesus is again identified by the Father. Matthew 17, verse 5, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Again, so now you have the same things again. Beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. He's righteous, he's the Son, and he's beloved. Unique status for the Son of God. Unique to Jesus. On top of all that, now we have listen to him. Now you have a serious problem with the first commandment if you don't believe in a trinity. How can you listen to anybody but God? How can you obey anybody but God? If you believe in a trinity, then you have no problem with this verse because Jesus is God and listening to Jesus, following the Father's command here to listen to Christ, is not breaking the first commandment because you are still listening to God. God is triune. The Father can ask you to listen to the Son. But if you do not believe in a trinity, meaning you reject the deity of Christ, you have a real pickle with this verse because God is asking you to listen to somebody in your mind who is not God. And yet God has commanded you that you shall have no other gods besides him. So how do you reconcile that? You can't. This is why the Son... The Son of God is a unique title for Jesus and also has divinity associated to him because you have to listen to him. Obedience is for God alone. Very, very important. Now, another thing I want to talk about before we get back to this begotten thing, because it's a very fascinating idea, but I want to touch on this idea of the Son as the King and the Messiah. Again, there's so many complex aspects to Jesus's identity. And it's just really fun to dive into it. But you'll see with the Son of Man, it's the same thing. There's so many layers. And it's really, truly profound because it paints this picture of the incarnation, which in itself is a mystery. But through these things, like through these titles, like understanding what does the Son of God mean? What does the Son of Man mean? What are the different shades and contours and colors of these titles actually really mean? you'll see how complex and beautiful these identities really are. So the Son of God has a divine quality to it. Listen to him. But also we can see the Son of God as the Messiah. Remember, the demons acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God and the Christ, all in one sentence. So there's this theme of the Son of God being the Messiah and the King that's come to save the world. So let's look at a few passages. Now, in the Old Testament, you have a few like Psalm 2, verse uh, 7, where he says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. 
Today I have begotten you. Of course, we're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to this. But this psalm is about the son being king. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed all who take blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now again, this is <laughs> if you've read your Bible, you know that you only take refuge in the Lord. That's what the Bible says. Blessed are people who take refuge in the Lord. And now in Psalm 2, you have the son as a kingly figure and blessed are those who take refuge in him. Well, if the son isn't God, you have a real problem. But we'll come back to this today I have begotten you. And I want to look at another one in the New Testament, which is again, this, this son of David idea where Jesus points Back to these Psalms, especially like Psalm 110, which are kind of related, and stumps the Pharisees. This is in Matthew 22, verse 41. Whose son is the Christ? This idea of the Christ and the son, like who, whose son is he? What, what is the identity of the son and the Christ? Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from there at that point did anyone ask, did dare to ask him any more questions. So again, this is, Jesus is pointing this reality that you don't understand these terms. The Pharisees, much like the Jews of today, much like the Unitarians, much like the Mormons, much like anybody who rejects these simple teachings that are very profound, and really they're not that simple in the sense that for the world, people are blind to these things. You have to have the Holy Spirit open your eyes and pray about it if you're having trouble with this, because this is what the Bible teaches. And you can see from 2,000 years ago, people were still stumbling over the same mistakes. The Pharisees were reading chapters in the, you know, these Psalms and basically interpreting them in a literal fleshly way. Oh yeah, the, he's the son of David. He's David's son. But then Jesus confounds them by pointing to these Psalms. Which is, well, how can in Psalm 110, how can he say if he's being guided by the spirit of God, the Lord says to my Lord, how can he call him Lord? If he's just his son, if he's just this physical offspring. In other words, if Jesus is created, how can David call him Lord? Do you see the point that he's trying to make here in a very poetic and, you know, just classic way that he does? And they didn't know how to answer it because they didn't understand this duality of the incarnation, which is, yes, there's a human component but there's a divine component. And that divine component was not ever created. He was pre-existing. He's the God that was speaking to you in the Old Testament. And he's here now in front of you. Now, of course, in Samuel, we also have another prophecy type of situation. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. 
This is about Solomon. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is talking about now, a lot of people recognize this is a dual dual prophecy in the sense that, of course, it's talking about Solomon who built the, the first temple. But really, again, types and shadows, pictures, nonverbal prophecy pointing to Christ. This is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who is the son of David. But again, remember, who's the son of David? Not just a physical fleshly offspring. He's human, but he's also divine. He's the Lord. And he built a house for my name. Well, again, who built the final temple? Who's the temple? Jesus is the temple. This is why this whole third temple in Israel thing is just nonsense. So go watch my end time series and learn the truth about the end times. A lot of people are deceived because they don't read their scripture. The body of Christ is the house of God, is the temple. This is what the New Testament teaches. And in this prophecy about Solomon, which is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, it's talking about Jesus building the church through his body, through his sacrifice. Now we can partake in that body through faith. That kingdom, which is the church, which is the body of believers, the Lord's table, all these terms are synonymous and used interchangeably. But we partake in that kingdom, and that kingdom is going to be forever. Now, of course, Jesus will return. Eternity will be ushered in. Until then, there's a spiritual kingdom. When he returns, it'll be physically fulfilled. Everybody's going to be resurrected, given eternal bodies, and the kingdom will be forever. But these prophecies are, what is the point here? The prophecies that we just talked about with Psalm 2, Psalm 110, uh, 2 Samuel 7, these are pointing to the reality that the Son of God, the Son of David, the one that's going to come, is a Messiah figure and a king figure. There's kingly and godly aspects of this person. Now, if we look at the New Testament, we can see that the Jews understood this. In John 1, verse 49, Nathanael recognizes Jesus as the Son of God and the King. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, thee. You are the King of Israel. So the Son of God and the King of Israel are an equal reality. That's part of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Very interesting. Matthew 14, verse 33. This is after he calmed the storm. He receives worship, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Now again, if you don't believe in a trinity, you have a real problem with this because Jesus received worship and he did not rebuke them. Every other time in the Bible, like for example, when the angel shows up to John, and John bows down to him, and the angel says, no, 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 don't do that. I'm a fellow worker like you. We're brothers, right? Sons of God. You're a son of God. I'm a son of God. But... Jesus is the Son of God. They said, you are the Son of God, meaning the one, the the one that's promised in the scriptures, the human and divine component in one person. And they worshiped him. And Jesus did not rebuke them for that. He didn't say, no, 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 that's only for God. He received worship. So how do you deal with that? You deal with it that Jesus is God and he's the second person of God, the Son of God. Of God. Do you see how that works? 
God is a triune being. There's the Spirit of God. There's the Son of God. Of course, there's the Father of God, but we don't really say that. We just say the Father. But really, that's how it all works, at least in a very simplified way. Of course, we can't put God in a box, but we try to understand his profound nature through something like the Trinity, because this is what the Bible forces you into with these types of passages. Now, in Matthew 25, we have the Son of Man and King. I want to I show you how this is all tied to the Son of God as well. Matthew 25, verse 31, the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all its angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. If you remember this from Ezekiel, where you know Christ is the good shepherd, but God was speaking of himself as the shepherd, and then also as a separate person as the shepherd. So again, you have triune realities. Verse 33, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Very, very important. So why is this important? Because the king is the son of man. Now we also know that Jesus is the son of God. So you have all these real, now of course we're going to talk about son of man in the next episode. That's a whole nother can of worms to unpack, but the son of God equals the son of man equals the king equals the Messiah equals the God man, the incarnation. All these things are part of Jesus's identity and being and they're painted in different places and you have to put them together and understand the complexity of his existence. Matthew 26 verse 63 But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, which is the Son of God. So the Son of God is the Messiah, is this heavenly deity component. Now look what happens in the next verse, verse 64. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand, at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and he said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What's going on in these three verses? So profound. Again, first off, you have the son of God, which is the Christ. Then Jesus says the son of man. And then they they say, this is blasphemy. So what's going on here? Obviously, the son of man is not just a normal title. It means something divine. And so does the Son of God. So does the Christ. All these realities are in one reality. That's why the the high priest tore his clothes and uttered blasphemy. They picked up what was going on. These realities are all intersecting in one person. Now, very important here is that Jesus is making an allusion to Daniel 7, where the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days and receives dominion over all things. This happened after the ascension, by the way. That's why Jesus is king right now, and he's ruling, and we are in the millennium until he returns. Not a future 1,000 years. Learn the truth about the end times. Danceoflife.com slash end times. But this passage equates the Son of God to the Christ, to the Son of Man, to blasphemy, meaning God. All of that is one reality. And again, Jesus uh, cites 
or makes reference to Daniel 7. Now, the reason they tore their clothes is because writing on the clouds of heaven is strictly reserved for Yahweh. Everywhere where you look, we're going to look at this in the next episode on the Son of Man more specifically, but everywhere where you look where God is writing on the clouds of heaven, that's reserved strictly for God, writing on the clouds of heaven. But then you have this vision that Daniel has of the Ancient of Days, which is obviously God, and then the Son of Man who rides on the clouds, who must also be God. How do you deal with that? That's why the Jews had the two powers in heaven theory, which again, they declared a heresy shortly after Jesus and Christianity. You wonder why. This is what they were trying to explain, is that you have these distinctions between God, even though there's Ancient of Days on a throne, you also have this other figure who is riding on the clouds, who is divine. The high priest tore their clothes, so this is blasphemy. You're claiming to be that person. If that person wasn't God, then why would they utter such things? Why would they behave this way? So this this interchange equates all of these things together. The Christ, Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, and divinity all in one. Very, very important. Now in Luke 4, verse 41, I believe we looked at some of these before, but in the demons also came out of many crying, you are the Son of God. And he rebuked them. Again, the Christ is related to the Son of God. The Messiah, the Son of God, it's all part of the same identity. In John 10, verse 32, again, you have this blasphemy related to the Son of God. So there's there's something going on here where the Son of God is not just a Son of God, but the Son. There's some special, unique component to this title. And that's why Jesus is not created, because this is a unique title to him as God, as the second person of the Trinity. John 32, this is another interesting interchange that a lot of prosperity teachers get this wrong, but Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So there you go. Blasphemy is making yourself God. Now, let's continue. Jesus answered them, it is, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, the word here is Elohim, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Uh, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Gosh, there's so much in here. It's really, you could probably do a whole study just on these couple of verses, man. I mean, it's just crazy. So first off, they're calling him, they're saying that he's making himself God. But his response to that is, you're calling, you're saying I'm blaspheming and making myself God because I said I'm the son of God. You're saying I'm blaspheming. So obviously they perceive that when he says, I am the son of God, I'm the consecrated one, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, that I'm not just a prophet. That's not the statement being 
perceived by these Jews. The statement being perceived is, you're making yourself equal to God. So there was an understanding that the Son of God is a divine title. The Son of God is a unique person. It's a unique title for a divine person. Of course, they didn't have the full understanding that was obvious what that really means. We do as Christians today with the full revelation of Scripture. But it's very clear from these interchanges what they reacted to. They didn't react to Jesus calling himself a prophet or a messenger. They reacted to Jesus claiming to be God. Very, very important. Now, I want to address this verse 34, where he says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? This, first off, huge asterisk, this has been taken so out of context by the prosperity movement. And saying, oh, see, well, they called them gods. But the, what this actually is talking about is, again, pointing to shadows and types. It's not saying that we're little gods. It's not saying that we have, you know, we're kind of divine and we're, we're little gods running around. We're made in the image of God. So you see, we must be little gods. And that's not at all what this is about. The scriptures Jesus is referring to is where judges and kings are called Elohim. Because Elohim, the word Elohim, is used for a lot of different things. It's used for the sons of God, meaning kings, judges, and also prophets, angels. It's it's a very diverse term. That's why you have to read it in context, because it's also used for God, as in the Elohim, right? But the point is that Jesus is saying, look, if if God called these people Elohim, meaning run-of-the-mill regular people. Of course, they were kings and judges, but still they were people. They died. They're not there anymore. If he called them gods, how much more is the person in front of you who is the son of God? Do you see what Jesus is trying to say here? Not trying, but really what he's saying. They're just not getting it. If he called them gods, judges and kings, people who had authority over the earth, how much more is the Son of God the Son of God? How much more does that matter if Scripture calls people that died gods in the sense of Elohim like judges and kings? So very, very important, very important that again, it's, it's a comparison. There's so much going on in this interchange, so much. The Jews are accusing him of blasphemy. They perceive he's making himself equal to God by calling himself the Son of God. Jesus responds by saying, look, if Scripture calls kings and judges gods, well, what about the one that the Father actually consecrated and appointed to come into the world and sacrifice himself and be the Messiah? How much more so does that apply to me, basically? Very, very powerful interchange. Now, we'll ask, last but not least, John 11, this is Mary, this is Lazarus's sister, also recognizes the same reality. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So the Jews were aware of this reality, that the Son of God, the, meaning the, the, the preeminent Son of God, had a divine quality, had a king quality, had a Messiah quality. Again, Jesus has a complex identity, very, very complex. 
Now, I want to get back to this Psalm 2, verse 7, where it says, Today I have begotten you, because now we're ready to talk about it. Very, very fascinating stuff. So let's read it one more time. I will tell of the, the decree, The Lord said to me, You are my son. So Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What does this mean? Does this mean that Jesus was created at some point? How do we read this in context of everything we've understood so far, where Jesus has made himself equal to God, he's claimed pre-existence, he's the one who all the apostles and writers believed was God, that created the world, so how could he have been begotten in the sense that we understand begetting when you beget a child? And the answer is that it's not in that understanding, it's in a different type of understanding. Context is the key. This psalm in general, the reign of the Lord's anointed is the title. And it's talking about how God will set his king. He will set his king over all creation for all time. It's a a done deal. There will be a king. And of course, that king is Jesus. But this is talking about an appointment, meaning God has made the decision to make Jesus king. And the son will be king over all creation. It's not talking about the creation of Jesus. Now, I want you to compare this to a couple things. First one is 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. And we're going to read this in the KJV because it says a little more clearer. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one touch him, toucheth him not. So being begotten by God, what does that mean? Mean being born again. That's what this is talking about. It's being born again or adopted or appointed. Remember in Acts when it says as many as were appointed to believe, received the truth. So when you believe, it's not something that you do. It's something that you've been appointed to by God the Father from before time began. We looked at that in the Second episode, the Trinity and salvation. Romans 8, baby, golden chain of redemption. And ultimately that gives us eternal security, but truly understanding that belief doesn't come from us, it comes from God. And so when we are begotten of God and we're made a new creation, we're appointed to be sons of God. We are adopted into the family of God. There's a change through an appointment of some kind. And now this idea takes on full shape when we look at Hebrews. So I want to go step by step. Now we're going to Hebrews 5, and this is verse 1 through 6. For every high priest taken from among, actually let's do ESV because it's a little easier. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is so important to understanding Psalm 2. If you don't have this, it's very easy to get carried away 
with our worldly understanding of certain words. The author of Hebrews is applying Psalm 2, verse 7, where he says, Today I have begotten you, to the appointment of a priest. And connects it to another place where he says in Psalm 10, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So again, complex reality. So far we've seen son of God is divine, Messiah, King, son of David, but also priest and savior. So there's all these ideas in one identity, which is just so profound. And the author's of the Bible, especially the author of Hebrews, are seeing this begottening as an appointment. It's not talking about Jesus being created. It's talking about Jesus being appointed. He was the one that was appointed. He was the anointed one, the Messiah that came into the world to be the propitiation for sins, to be the Savior, and of course, to be the King as well, and to be the priest. Again, Jesus has the most complex identity. He is literally the most interesting man in the world. And studying his identity gives us clues from all these Old Testament realities of what, what he's like. What is, what is his identity? Of course, first and foremost, his identity is God. But it's so much more complex than that. As you can see, the, the author connects these two Psalms together and applies them to an appointment. Very, very important, because Jesus wasn't always high priest until he sacrificed. When he sacrificed, he became had he became high priest because he had to have the Old Testament pictures first of what the high priests were like. Aaron was called by God. Aaron did certain things. If you study the high priest's vestments and garments, all that pointed to Christ as the anointed chosen one that would be before God forever to be interceding for us. And also the king. Jesus was also uniquely appointed to be king at the same time that he's priest. These are all interrelated realities. He's also appointed to be the mediator between God and man. Nobody else. There's no other mediator between God and man, as the Bible says. That's why if you're part of the Catholic religion, get out as soon as you can, because... The Bible warns you to leave Babylon lest you share in her plagues. The author of Hebrews saw the word begotten in Psalm 2 as an appointment, not as a creation. Very, very important. So Psalm 2 cannot be used by people like Unitarians, Mormons, whatever, to say that, oh, you see, Jesus is created. That's not what it's talking about. The Psalm itself is talking about God's appointment of a king, that would rule forever. And so when we get more context than that, and we see how the word begotten is used, both in John's letter, when we, when we are begotten of God, we become appointed to salvation. When we you know, become born again, we become adopted. It's an appointment. And of course, the author of Hebrews, when he's talking about the priests and, and the, the priest, high priest being appointed, he applies Psalm 2 to Jesus' appointment as a high priest. So this is talking about an appointment. So when you, now, when you understand previous things, like the only begotten Son in John 3.16, the only begotten Son, that is 
God's appointed one. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about the only son that that God procreated and had. That's not the understanding. That is how we would look at, you know, let's say you have a friend and they only have one child in their family. Okay, that's their only begotten son in that sense, right? That's the only one that they had. But that's, again, you can't import those physical, limited, fleshly categories to Christ and to the reality of God. Because what they mean in context is something totally different. Only begotten is the only one appointed. He's the only mediator. He's the only one that's been appointed to have authority over all things and to judge. Remember, we talked about all these things in the last episode, or maybe two episodes ago. So many parallels between Yahweh in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. One of them being, he's the judge. Yahweh's the judge of the earth. But then New Testament, Jesus is the one that's appointed a judge. He's the one that's appointed. He's the only begotten. He's the Messiah. He's the king. He's the judge. He's the priest. He's the prophet. He's all of these things. He's the only one that's been appointed to do and to be all these things. So when we when you see only begotten son, that's what it means. It doesn't mean he's created in any sense of the word because Jesus is eternal. He's always been. He created the world. All things were created through him. There was not anything made that was made that wasn't made through Jesus. That's what John 1 says. So final thoughts. Jesus has a complex identity and we're going to learn more and more about that next time when we look at the Son of Man title. But the Messiah is a suffering servant, which is the Christ, which is also the conquering king, which is the son of God, which is the son of David, which is the incarnation. All of these things are pointing to the same reality, the same living reality, which is Jesus Christ. But of course, we have, we have the limitation of language. And so we need all of these pictures and mosaics to try to create an understanding of who God is who God in the flesh is. And it's so interesting and fascinating. Like I said, he's the most interesting man in the world because his identity is so complex and so fascinating. But people don't understand these things and they, they see them as separate, like the Pharisees did. They say, oh, he's, well, he's the son of David. How can he be called Lord if he's just David's son, if he's just another human being? You see the point? And again, people today still don't see these distinctions. Very, very important. The Jews today still see two two messiahs, Ben Joseph and Ben David, and anybody could be the messiah. So it's just a human, it, it's completely different than what the Jews in the, in the actual Old and New Testaments believed. As you can clearly see, Nathaniel, Mary, the apostles, they all believed, the, the Pharisees who tore their robe, they all knew and understood that the messiah was a divine being, not just any ordinary human being. Whereas the Jews of today, who are very far removed from anything Jewish in the Old Testament, that may be a contra- contradictory idea, but or I should say a controversial idea, not a very popular idea, but it's the truth. The Jews of today have very little to do with Jews of the Old and New Testaments. One of the examples being that the Messiah, their belief of the Messiah is that anybody could be the Messiah. It's just a human being. It's more of a political role. Somebody's going to, you know, do this and do that. 
Of course, there's two messiahs. So they are so far removed from the truth. Very clearly so. But Jesus was also acknowledged as the Son of God by the Father, the Spirit, the Apostles, Mary, that's Lazarus' sister, the angel Gabriel, the Roman centurion, John the Baptist, demons, and even the devil. All of these people acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, nobody else. And of course, the Father and the Spirit acknowledged him in a much more special way through the baptism and the transfiguration. Remember this also, that Jesus is the fulcrum. He's the singularity. The cross was predestined. The reason we exist is because of the cross. Because Christ decided to come into the world to reveal God and pay the debt that we couldn't pay. That created all of reality. All of reality is created for him. He is who split time in half. He is where the law and the sin can and basically resolve themselves. Man and God came together. Mercy and justice came together. Life and death come together at the cross. The tree of knowledge and the tree of life come together. Wrath and grace, fall and redemption, judgment and justification. All of these profound realities come together in Christ. It's so profound to think about these things. But the Son of God was a title throughout the Bible, uh, you know, used for angels, used for prophets, used for various things, leaders. But the Son of God is only used for Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all of the shadows and types of Son of God in the Old Testament. And that is because these things work from the lesser to the greater. All these things like firstborn, they don't mean, firstborn doesn't mean created for Jesus. It means preeminent. It takes the things that, that apply to God and leaves out the ones that don't. Just like when you say that the Father is a person, very clearly so, the Spirit is a person, we don't mean that the Spirit has a body, a physical body, or the Father has a physical body. Of course, if you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father, but the point is that the Father has is a person, but not all the things that we normally attribute to personhood apply to the Father or to the Son or to the Holy Spirit. So this is very important, is when you say firstborn, it doesn't mean that Jesus is created, it just means preeminent. Just like the firstborn sons were preeminent in the family. You got all the inheritance. You were the preeminent one. That status is what we give to Christ. We do not give him being created as the firstborn, if that makes sense. Hopefully it does. Very important to have these distinctions, otherwise you get lost in really poor theology. Only begotten refers to uniqueness and appointment. It doesn't mean only child. It doesn't mean created in terms of Jesus now. We're talking about in terms of Jesus. Of course, if you're talking about just a regular physical person, yes. But in terms of Jesus, only begotten refers to his uniquely appointed status. He's the only one that was appointed to be king, messiah, mediator, sacrifice, high priest. He's the only begotten. When it says in Psalm 2, today I have begotten you, it refers to Jesus' appointment, meaning he's the only name under heaven which we can be saved. He proceeds from God. He's begotten by the Father, meaning he's one with the Father. He is from God, just like he said. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one, so that you understand that the Father is in me, I am in the Father. 
he is, excuse me, he is from God. That's the point. The son of God, going back to this idea I mentioned earlier, the father is, the, the God is a triune being of father, son, and Holy Spirit. So when we say the son of God, do you see what that really means? The son of God. God is a triune being. You have the son of God. You have the spirit of God. Of course, we never really say the father of God, but the father, then you have the son of God and the spirit of God. They all are God, but God is tripersonal, if that makes any sense. But it should, because look, the son is not a reality like we have realities with our sons and daughters. The son of God for Jesus is a unique title that points to his divinity. Remember what he testified of himself in the previous episodes. Remember what others testified of him. Very clear the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. So with that context, the only answer is that how you read these things is that the title Son of God is actually proof of God of Jesus' divinity, not proof against it as people are using it. People say, oh, son of God, see, it's a different ontology than the father. No, in fact, it says that he has the same ontology. Do you see the point of all this? The son of God is exactly the opposite of what most people think who are arguing against the Trinity. The son of God is proof that he is God, that he is from God, that he is, he and the father are one, that God is a triune being, all these things that we've been talking about. But next time we're going to look at the Son of Man, we're going to unpack that title and see how much, that's I think even more complex than the Son of God. But remember, all these titles, when you're looking at them, they have to be interpreted in context. In cultural context, a lot of cultural context is needed to understand what Son of God really means. What did the Jews expect and think? What did they? How did they use terms like firstborn son? scriptural context, like looking at how Hebrews, how the author of Hebrews applies and understands Psalm 2, rather than reading it the way you would understand it as a 21st century Western person, right? Reading these things, very, very different. So we have to use context all the time. But I hope today's been enlightening for you. I hope you've seen something different today. Leave your comments and questions in the comments. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me too. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you then. Hey, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want in-depth Bible studies, free resources, encouragement, or if you just want to get in touch with me, check out danceoflife.com. Until next time, God bless.